and welcome to What Were You Thinking? I'm Laura Round and in this podcast I ask politicians, opinion formers and business people about the places, people and experiences that have impacted their thinking. And in this episode I speak to Jeremy Hunt, former Foreign Secretary, Health Secretary and runner-up in the last Conservative Party leadership election and he currently chairs the Health Select Committee in the House of Commons. We discuss a wide range of issues, including the COVID-19 situation we find ourselves in and what lessons we should be taking away from it, the debate around face masks, as well as the issues around maternity health, which is an issue Jeremy was particularly passionate about while Secretary of State for Health and still is to this day. We also discuss the situation in Hong Kong and Taiwan, the drop in the aid budget, as well as the direction the Conservative Party is and should be going. He shares a number of anecdotes. And for example, you're going to find out why NHS chief Simon Stevens gave Jeremy Hunt a bone of a hadrosaur. Now, I want to point out that this conversation took place a little while ago before my summer holidays, and therefore the grave and horrific situation that we're witnessing in Afghanistan today is not mentioned in this conversation. If we were speaking this week, I'm sure it'd be front and centre of the conversation, especially considering his experience as Foreign Secretary. Now, this episode is supported by WaterAid, who are working to bring clean water, good hygiene and decent sanitation, WASH, to everyone everywhere by 2030. They are working to support governments in developing countries to respond to the twin threats of the COVID-19 pandemic and the increasingly challenging effects of climate change. Investing in water, sanitation and hygiene saves lives and helps to build resilient communities in some of the poorest countries on Earth. The global water and sanitation crisis is stark. To put this into perspective, two billion people don't have safely managed water for drinking, cooking or personal use. Four billion people don't have safely managed sanitation. And in the middle of a pandemic, one in four healthcare facilities worldwide don't have a basic water supply. To reduce infant and maternal deaths, doctors and nurses need to have access to good hand washing. To provide more girls with a decent education, they need access to good hygiene services And with increasingly volatile weather patterns, sanitation services need to be resilient. Crucially, to prevent disease, people need basic access to soap and water. These are all ambitions WaterAid shares with the UK government. But these laudable goals will never be realised whilst funding from UK aid is being cut by up to 80%. The UK should be stepping up to meet these challenges rather than stepping back. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining. What were you thinking? It's really exciting to have you on. And um, I think the first question that I'd love to ask you is the people in your life that have impacted your thinking and your politics or have had another sort of special impact on you? Well, um, when people ask for political heroes, I'm, I'm very boring and I talk about people like Margaret Thatcher, but... Uh, because I was a sort of firebrand conservative in the 1980s at Oxford University when she was at the height of her power and glory. Um, But I would say that since I've become an MP, uh, my real hero 
is a historical figure and it's actually William Wilberforce. And the reason is because uh, two years after I became an MP, that uh, was the 200th anniversary of the abolition of slave trade. And William Hague wrote a book on Wilberforce, which I read. And I didn't understand something incredible about Wilberforce, which was that he was an MP in this place. Uh, he was never a government minister. And he just focused on one issue. And it took him nearly 20 years to persuade MPs to vote to abolish the slave trade, even though the majority of them owned shares in companies that profited from the slave trade. And so he actually is probably the first and only person in history who has persuaded MPs to vote against their own self-interest. And um, I find that a totally inspiring story because Politics is such a random place. It's a roller coaster. It's not meritocratic at all. Um, and you have wild swings of fate and fortune. And here was someone who just plugged away. He didn't have any of the plum jobs. And he changed the world more than pretty much any MP ever. And uh, so that's why he's my inspiration. That's a great story. So in your personal life and in your route into politics yourself, are there any people that you come across personally that you think have then also impacted you or sort of encouraged you or inspired you on a slightly more personal level to, to go into politics and, and to advocate what you advocate for? Um, well, um, I think I went into politics for sort of, pretty old fashioned and not particularly exciting reasons. You know, I was a son of a naval officer and um, there was an element of duty and an element of ambition in uh, wanting to be an MP. Um, but I don't think anything that particularly set me apart. But the biggest job that I've done in politics so far is to be health secretary for nearly six years. Um, not the most senior job, but the biggest job. And um, when I became health secretary in 2012, I had no idea uh, what I was really gonna do as health secretary. It's the largest organization in Europe, the fifth largest in the world. And I wasn't by any way, shape or form an expert in health policy. And I had to deal with the tragedy of mid-staffs and the people who gave me my North Star uh, who gave me my guiding uh, thing that I stuck with my whole time through some pretty tumultuous years were the patients and their families who had suffered because of the most terrible tragedies. And I found when I met them that I knew why I was health secretary. I'm not, there was a, uh, a terrible tragedy at Morecambe Bay and I am um, where 11 babies probably more died unnecessarily because of poor maternity care. And um, the day before my statement to parliament, um, a, a group of people came to see me and one of them had lost not just his um, daughter, but actually his wife as well had died in childbirth. And um, 
he um, he came and he had he, he said he wanted to bring his 11 year old son because it was going to be a pretty traumatic meeting I said to my officials why don't you have to look after the, the son while we have the meeting and uh, but the message came back no he wants his son to be with him in the meeting so we sat and there were all these families around plus this boy and I suddenly realized that the reason that boy was there was because his father wanted to show him that he had taken his complaints, the complaints that meant this boy had lost his mother and his sister right to the very top. And it was incredibly powerful for me. And I, you know, I went through times where I was the most unpopular person in the country because of the battles I was having as health secretary. Um, but somehow just remembering and I don't say that I got everything right and I'm sure I made lots of mistakes when I did the job but just having the memory of those people in my mind was was what kept me going curiously and um, it's why I then decided after I left the government to become chair of the health and social care select committee it's given me an abiding uh, interest and passion in, in what's called patient safety but it it's really about preventing avoidable deaths in, in healthcare systems. It's something I discovered is not just an issue in, in the NHS, but it's an issue all over the world. So um, without wanting to sound banal or trite, um, it was really meeting those people that have had the biggest impact. I can, um, I can imagine that that must have a particular impact on you and, and, and in that, that job and role you were in. That's really remarkable. And what a lovely story about the father and his his boy. I mean, you mentioned maternal health there and you've just recently published a report on the safety of maternity services in England. And um, from what I gather, your select committee's report calls for an immediate investment of £350 million pounds, uh, to prevent women and babies dying from avoidable harm. And um, you've done a big investigation into this. So what, what was the reason for you and your committee to take this on? And is that something that your experience of a health secretary influenced that? Or, you know, how did that come about? Well, I mean, Laura, I could spend the whole podcast just talking about this. But um, let me... Um, let me give you the short answer. Absolutely, this was my biggest um, my biggest passion was uh, some of these terrible patient safety issues. But within that, maternity safety um, was definitely the most poignant because it's obviously such a terrible tragedy. No parent should ever have to bury their own child. Um, and um, there are really two uh, levels. I mean, the first is that. Um, you know, my first reaction when I discovered some of these problems is, well, we've just got to fire the midwives, fire the doctors who are responsible for these things. Then I realised that actually um, mid you don't become a midwife because you want to harm people. You go into that profession because you want to help people, and that's why you become a doctor and a nurse. These are incredibly uh, well-meaning people who are driven by the highest of motives, but they make mistakes, like we all make mistakes. Um, but in your profession and my profession, when you make a mistake, someone doesn't die. Doctors, nurses, midwives are brave enough to go into a profession where sometimes the result of an innocent mistake is that someone dies. And 
they want nothing more in that situation than to be completely open and transparent and say they're sorry and learn from what went wrong and make sure it never happens again. We make that practically impossible because uh, lawyers get involved, people are worried about being sued, they're worried about uh, being fired, about losing their right to practice, about the reputation of their hospital, their unit. And it's as if the whole world is conspiring to stop the most important thing happening abroad, which is total openness and transparency with the parents who've lost a child and putting in place systems to make sure these mistakes never happen again. And there is a blame culture, which is not just the NHS, as I said, it's in healthcare systems around the world, because essentially it's so much easier when something terrible goes wrong to say it's because we had a bad apple in our organization, we're just gonna fire that person. When 99 times out of 100, it's nothing to do with that. So dealing with those cultural issues is a huge challenge, which I started looking at as health secretary and I come back to in this report. But there's also something else, which is if you said to me, what's the biggest thing I wish I'd known at the start of my time as health secretary that I didn't? It is the importance of proper workforce planning and making sure that you have enough staff to do all these vital jobs. And if I had hired 50,000 more doctors the day I became health secretary, there wouldn't have been a single additional doctor the day I left, because it takes seven years to train a doctor. And we're far too short term in this approach. So I did actually increase uh, the number of doctors we train. I set up five new medical schools, but not a single one uh, graduate has yet joined the NHS because of the time it takes to do this. And that's the other thing we talk about in this report. We have a shortage of midwives, a shortage of obstetricians. There's actually shortages in many specialties across the NHS, and we need to overhaul our workforce planning because people have been working so hard in the pandemic. They know that we can't solve these problems overnight, but they do want to know that at the very least, there's a plan in place to make sure it's not always going to be like that. That's a really interesting point about the length of time it takes to onboard. And of course, um, it, it can take less than a day to, to lose people or, you know, mm. your hand in your resignation. So that is a huge discrepancy. And, and obviously one of the issues that is um, raised in the whole Brexit debate is the impact it will have on, on staff shortages in the NHS. I mean, what is the impact that you are currently seeing with regards to that? Well, what we're seeing is um, a lot of burnout. Um, mm. People, uh, about 40% of staff in the most recent NHS survey, 44% actually, said that they had felt sufficiently stressed at work that they were unable to do their functions in their work as well as they needed to. Um, and you're seeing a lot of doctors and nurses saying they want to work part-time, which of course is adding even more to the stress and pressure. And of course, hospitals are saying, you can't work part-time because we've got so much work we need to do. And that's creating even more pressure. And so unless we resolve the workforce pressures in the NHS, uh, there's a risk of a, a vicious circle in which the problems just get worse and worse. Um, I think we all know how much NHS and care staff have done for us in the last year. But the best present we could give them is to say, it isn't always going to be like this. And we've got a plan in place to take us five years, six years, seven years to, 
to properly resolve these issues, but there's a plan in place uh, to make sure that there's enough people to do the job. Mm. You just said, if you could ask, if you if you would ask, uh, or if I were to ask you um, what you wish you'd known when you took on the role as health secretary, in light of the pandemic and COVID-19, what do you think the biggest lessons are, or to, to use your uh, words and that question, what did you wish you knew, or do you think we should have known or could have known at the start of a pandemic? Well, um, there's a sort of practical point and a general point. The practical point is that we did exhaustive pandemic planning, but we had a kind of blind spot that was the same across the whole of Europe and North America, that that a pandemic was likely to be a flu pandemic and flu behaves very differently to coronavirus. And so, because flu spreads more quickly than the coronavirus and the incubation period is shorter, you show symptoms much more quickly. Uh, you don't really worry about testing except at the very early stages. So we didn't have proper testing plans in place. So a very obvious lesson is to make sure that we are properly thinking about every single type of pandemic that we could have and preparing for them and not just with this narrow focus on, on flu. Interestingly, we didn't have that blind spot when it came to vaccine development. And we um, put money when I was health secretary into... Uh, trying to get a vaccine for the MERS uh, virus, uh, which then became the foundation for the AstraZeneca vaccine. So, um, and of course, vaccine has been our great success story. So um, it's a mixed picture. But I think the more general lesson from the pandemic is the NHS did incredibly well. Broadly speaking, people who needed um, an intensive care bed or a ventilator got one but the price we paid was stopping a lot of regular NHS activity so we ended up with 40,000 fewer people starting cancer treatment and that will lead sadly to people dying and if we uh, if we are really thinking about preparing for another pandemic we need more resilience more latent capacity in the healthcare system so that we don't have to stop everything else we're doing in order to focus on the pandemic. Um, because the sad truth is that in the first wave, at least, we had at least one additional non-COVID death for every COVID death that we had because people's regular NHS care was interrupted. And what about the things like, you know, it's back in the news now, face masks and, you know, at the start, it was um, the very beginning, people felt well the evidence is you know we shouldn't be wearing them and but in Asia uh, Asian countries they've been wearing them for a long time or you know if you have a cold it's sort of uh, considered a polite thing to do to put on a mask and you know or not go to work and of course we have a very different culture here where how do you think you know how, how do you explain that sort of um, disconnect I think at the start well, I think um, if you want to make a cultural change, such as making masks a normal, more normal part of our lives, as happens in Japan, I lived there for two years, I actually think it's an excellent thing in Japan that they have a social convention that you know, if you have a cold, you wear a mask uh, to protect other people. Um, but you don't change those mores by uh, compelling people. Uh, you change it by appealing to people's 
the better side of people's nature. And indeed, it's not the law in Japan that you have to wear a mask if you have a cold, but people mm. do it because they are being considerate of their neighbours. So um, I don't think it's something we should legislate for, but I think it is something that we should consider as to whether it's, um, you know, a good thing to do. I think, um, you know, I lived in Japan for two years um, and uh, we take off our shoes at home and leave them at the front door when we go into our house, as lots of Asian families do. So, um, you know, I happen to think we live in the greatest country in the world, but one of the reasons is because we're open to uh, the best of what happens in every corner of the world. And mm. uh, so we're always going to have masks with us because of the potential for future pandemics, which we know now uh, there will be more of. Um, but I think we should also think about being good neighbours and be open to potential changes in customs. Being conscientious, yeah. I, I like that, your your approach to best country, but we also like to take, we're open to bringing in the best uh, or other nice practices abroad. That's a really nice way of putting it. We just talked about your role as chair of a select committee and you know, six years as health secretary and you've got that experience bringing that to the select committee, which I'm guessing is unprecedented. Uh, but you're also, of course, foreign secretary and you held, you know, you spent a lot of time in government and you're not the only former cabinet minister to now be leading a select committee. And, and my sense has been that select committees have become more prominent um, and there's been a lot of high profile moments uh especially the last year <laughs> you know I, I can't remember anyone uh let alone myself watching being glued to a select committee meeting for you know a, a, basically a marathon length of time even when I worked in parliament so um that's just been a very interesting development and I just wondered I mean what's your first-hand experience in that and do you think it it adds it really adds to the uh, you know obviously I know you're very humble but you know you and your colleagues what does that bring and how has it been how is it different from select committees that are chaired by um you know also splendid mps and you just you know start of of a podcast you uh, you reference uh, an mp who's probably had more impact than most ministers uh, who never served in government so obviously you don't need to be a fantastic select committee chair to have, been, to have served in cabinet but I just wondered what does what do you think that brings and how have you seen select committees develop uh, during the, the last two years? Well the real change in select committees was something that was introduced by the coalition government when uh, a very bold move by David Cameron as prime minister which was to allow parliament to elect select committee chairs, um, as happens in uh, Congress. And uh, that has given select committees an authority because they don't owe their position to the whips. And uh, that used to be the case that the plum select committee jobs were handed out by the whips. Um, and I think that uh, we have one of the um, most robust uh, democracies in the world in this country and the reason is because of the quality of debate we have that is available to citizens to draw on before they make their choices to who to vote for at elections and we have a whole category of the media the BBC the broadsheets uh, now you know upstarts like Times Radio who are coming in 
and raising the quality of debate. I mean, in America, the daily, um, the daily um, media um, debate is set by breakfast TV. In this country, it's the Today programme, and that kind of sums up the difference. And I think within that, select committees have a very important role, which is that we have the ability to hold the government to account in a non-party political way. And that is uh, something that otherwise Parliament would not have. So, um, you know, I wasn't expecting there to be a pandemic when I became chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee. But um, it's particularly difficult for Parliament to make a judgment about the government's handling of the pandemic, because in the last 18 months, we've seen some of the greatest failures of the British state and some of the greatest triumphs. And if you're looking at that with partisan spectacles, it's very hard because you've got these two totally opposite things. Maybe that says something about our prime minister, Stanley, but he's able to uh, manage these contradictions um, in, in his sort of inimitable way. But um, I think that uh, that's where we have a role. And so I think we're very much like the French juge d'instruction. We are a seeker after the truth. And uh, that's um, my lockdown program, by the way, has been uh, my lockdown uh, box set has been a French series called Spiral, which features these uh, French juge d'instruction and the Paris police. And it's quite interesting to see how they operate, but that's what I think our role is. And, um, and I think it's been very important in the pandemic. I love it. We just got a, another French show. I mean, I was speaking to Mark Sedwell on a previous episode about another brilliant French show. Uh, called is that Euro? Euro? Yes. <laughs> That's another great one. I don't know. I, I used to be into Scandi Noir. Um, for some reason, this last year has been French. Uh, Call My Agent has been another yeah. one, which uh, I've uh, really enjoyed. Yeah, no, they've produced some brilliant stuff. Yeah, brilliant. Well, I hadn't heard of Spiral yet, so thank you for that. Before we move to to place, I just I just had one other question on on health care, which is sort of you know, I just feel you know you can't discuss health policy without touching on social care because it has been the ongoing uh, issue, and I know you are um, vocal on this. Um, you have been very outspoken and I just wanted to ask you, I guess it's a slightly cheeky question, but you know, would you be happy for, you know, do you think you'd be happy for your own parents or yourself when you're older to use the social care system or do you think you would want them or yourself to go, you know, to go private? Um, it's a lottery um, at the moment. Um, and if you, we actually have a, privatized system at the moment effectively so if you have enough money you can uh you can fund care for yourself um but uh there are some people who end up with catastrophically high care costs uh for whom um it's pretty miserable um i've got a friend who developed a uh a neurological condition um a bit, a bit like muscular dystrophy and basically uh, to pay for a care home was gonna clean him out of a hundred thousand pounds of savings. Um, and the reason he didn't want to do that was because he knew he was dying. And uh, he then thought his wife would be left with nothing when he died because all their savings had been used up for his care home fees. And 
those are the kind of heartbreaking stories that we have the whole time in our care system. And I think that we are, as a country, fundamentally a kind nation. We've got many vices, um, but um, I think our big virtue is our kindness. But I don't think our system is kind to older people. I think there's a huge lottery when it comes to social care. And I think it's, I don't think it's very British. I think we can do a lot better. So this is the moment to fix it a year after the pandemic when we've seen how amazing our, our care workers are. Um, and so that's my number one priority in Parliament at the moment to, to get a long-term plan for the social care system. Yeah, well, my father is 85 now and um, it's, uh, I never thought, you know, I'm starting to understand a bit more of system and experience firsthand and it definitely is uh, very, very, very concerning. Um, so moving on to place, um, you were foreign secretary, you've lived in Japan for two years. Um, I'm sure, well, I don't know how much you traveled in your job before parliament, uh, but I imagine you've been to many, many, many places, both outside of the UK and, and within the UK, probably visit countless hospitals. So what place would you identify as, or, you know, it could be more than one, that you uh, that has really stuck with you, or that you think has had an impact on your politics, even. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you uh, two places. Um, uh, the first one is um, a mountain in Wales called Moldvama, which is near Mold in uh, Pembrokeshire, which is where we used to go for family holidays every year because my um, father is half Welsh and uh, so we knew that part of North Wales very well um, and I I love nothing more than climbing a mountain but I'm very um, English about this I like the kind of mountains you can go up and down in a day not the ones that uh, involve uh, you know crampons and uh, camping and all that sort of thing but uh, um, I um, am one of those terrible uh, cliche people who bought a lockdown puppy and uh, we've never had a dog before. And my six-year-old, nine-year-old, and 11-year-old are besotted with her. She's a, a yellow Labrador called Poppy. And I'm longing for the day when I can take her up Molvama. Um, and uh, I think there's something absolutely wonderful about uh, mountains. But for me, it's the mountains in North Wales. And then my second place, I'm, and there is, so I don't have any particular link to politics um, on that, but it's just, one of those places in the world I love the most. Um, and then my second place would be a temple in Kyoto in Japan called Samboin, which is the most beautiful temple in Kyoto in my view. It's not the most famous. Uh, there's a golden temple and um, Kiyomizudera, and there are ones that are more famous. This is slightly off the beaten trail. It's absolutely exquisite and um, I, uh, I've actually, I'm Church of England Christian, but I've always loved meditation and Zen and uh, Buddhism. And if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be a Buddhist. And I think uh, those temples have an exquisite calm and they have that Japanese thing, which we, is very different to us here in England. They love gardens that you look at, but don't go in. And um, I mean, I love, 
being in the garden, but I have to say that these are just so beautiful, these gardens to look at. And um, so what do those two very different places and different sides of the world have in common? Just in a funny way, they both have the ability to bring me a little bit of calm and inner peace. And uh, that's why I love them both. And uh, I think in the, the, the work you're in, a bit of extra zen and calm. Uh, <laughs> much needed, much needed. Much needed. I remember when mindfulness was introduced to, to Parliament, I think MPs and staff, it was oversubscribed instantly. And it was a, t it was a massive hit. Uh, and you can see why. I mean, the amount of mm. stuff politicians have to juggle and the pressures and... Uh, endless yeah so Japan uh, features heavily and you were foreign secretary and so you know you know you're familiar with with that part of the world I wondered what your thoughts are on the situation with China and Taiwan and Hong Kong in particular especially after what we've been seeing and, and hearing the last couple of months well I think this is the big strategic challenge of the 21st century and um, if you look at the, the other big global issue that we face, which is climate change, um, we're not there yet on climate change, but we do know what the solution is and we started taking steps towards it. And with President Biden taking America back into the Paris Accord, with President Xi of China committing China to being net zero by 2060, it's not soon enough, but you can see the bones of a solution to avoid a climate crisis. But we haven't yet worked out what we're going to do about the fact that within the next 10 years, for the first time in our lifetimes, the largest economy in the world will not be a democracy. And uh, that is going to be a big challenge. And for those of us who believe in open societies, we look at the last century and we say, by the end of the last century, democracy was in a much stronger position than it was at the start of the 20th century. But if we're honest, it took us two world wars, a Holocaust and a Cold War to get there. And the question is, are we going to have, to have similar awful tragedies this century uh, to protect open societies and our values and our way of life? Or can we be smart enough as a human race to find a way to protect those values without the terrible conflicts that disfigured the last century. And um, it's an easy mistake to say China's just the new Soviet Union. Um, we won the Cold War largely because we were able to bankrupt the Soviet Union. Uh, we're not gonna be able to bankrupt China. Uh, we need to work with China on issues like climate change. And so we have to find a way of living alongside China in a way that doesn't compromise our values and um, there are no easy solutions in this, but I would say that if you're going to have that dialogue, you've got to negotiate from a position of strength. And so the one obvious thing that the democracies of the world need to do is to speak as one voice, to come together. Um, not because we want to contain China or stop China growing, but because we want to make sure that our values and our way of life is protected. And what are the steps that the UK government can do towards that to ensure that then happens? Well, I think that that is what uh, Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab were trying to do at the G7 summit in Cornwall. 
Um, and I think we have uh, an American president who's very committed to that. But what I would say is that you know, President Biden becoming president of the United States, someone who rejoined the Paris Accord in every speech talks about the importance of alliances and allies, who talks about bringing the democracies of the world together. This is an opportunity to address this issue. Have we really embraced it? Have uh, Europeans really embraced the opportunity that, that the door that President Biden has opened to a reinvigorated partnership? I don't think we have. Um, we're still uh, planning to buy an awful lot of gas from Russia. That's what the, the, the Germans are planning to do. Uh, we, we still find it difficult to come to united foreign policy positions across European countries. So I, I think at the moment, we're not moving nearly fast enough. And just on international development and the aid budget, uh, you've been um, vocal in your support uh, of maintaining 0.7. And um, I just wondered, you know, why, why do you feel so strongly about that? Because um, it happens to be something that uh, Britain has done extremely well. Um, and, um, you know, part of my definition of Britishness is that even during the financial crisis after 2008, uh, we didn't just maintain our commitments to 0.7%, we actually increased our aid budget very significantly. And, and that said something about the kind of country we are, which is that even when we're going through tough times, we haven't forgotten that there are people who are living on, on less than a dollar a day. And so, it speaks to our values, but um, we are respected around the world as a country that has really done an enormous amount on, on aid. Um, and if you look at the impact of what we've done in terms of reducing the incidence of malaria, tackling Ebola in places like Sierra Leone, I feel very proud. So for me, it's part of what makes us a great country, but also in the post-Brexit era, it's a fantastic way of showing that we are outward looking, open-minded, internationalist in our approach, at precisely the moment that our detractors would like to say Britain is, is closing up to the world, which you know, I most certainly hope we don't. We've, um, we've recently seen some interesting election results, which has sort of opened the debate around, you know, where does the future of a Conservative Party uh, lie um, is it in new, relatively new blue seats in the north, or is it uh, in our more traditional seats in the south? Uh, and of course, the Liberal Democrats taking uh, Chesham and Amersham was um, was a, a particularly big big loss. And from what I gather, has got a lot of MPs in that area quite worried, understandably so. What do you think the direction is for the party? Where do you, what's your prediction on where it's going to land and how do we bring those two together? Can we bring those two areas together? Well, um, you know, Boris is a political genius who got a huge majority in the 2019 election against everyone's expectations. Um, and um, what we are seeing is a realignment in British politics there was a YouGov poll after the Hartlepool by-election that said that uh, working class voters were voting 20% for Labour, 
52% conservative, working class voters. That is an extraordinary turnaround. And the last time we had this kind of coalition was under Tony Blair and New Labour, where he had a coalition of working class voters uh, and middle class voters that gave him those huge majorities. Well, uh, Boris Johnson has reformed that coalition under a conservative flag. Um, and it's an extraordinary achievement, but it's a coalition that you need to hold together. And that means keeping on to your new uh, Northern gains at the same time as holding on to your Southern heartlands. And Chesham and Amersham is a warning to us that we cannot take for granted our heartlands and that it is a very poisonous charge people think that Conservatives are taking them for granted. Um, I certainly never have in my own seat taken a single vote for granted. But I think the lesson we have to take away from that is that we need to be better at getting that message across uh, in the South East. It's in the, you know, what, what we want to do as Conservatives is what people in the South East want. They want us to be prosperous, successful, strong and uh, socially just as a country, and that chimes in with the values of my constituents in Farnham, Rotherham and Hazelmere. But maybe we, we need to think harder about how we get that message across. Mm. And just on the topic of uh, these, you know, that enormous majority and a lot of new faces in Parliament, who, and, and as you say, obviously Boris is incredibly popular in the country and within the party. So this is this is not uh, not in any way meaning to say you know expecting a leadership election anytime soon. But just wondering, who of the new intake would you describe as talent or one, ones to keep an eye out for? Maybe ones that could become uh, you know future minister or we might see in cabinet. Um, well, we've got some incredibly talented uh, new faces, um, the most prominent of which is the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. And then we've got people waiting in the wings like uh, Kimmy Badnock and uh, Vicky Atkins. Um, so we've got some, some very talented people. Then we've got some extremely talented new MPs, um, you know, like uh, Laura Trott, who sits on the select committee with me. So I think we have got some tremendous talent on the Conservative side, uh, which which I'm very proud of. Um, and uh, I think that's a very important thing for the future, that people can see that you're, you're full of ideas, you're not getting tired and you've got some, some great new faces. And the third question of um, who, where and what is the object. What object has, has had an impact on your thinking, Jeremy? Well, um, I'm gonna cheat and I'm gonna show you something actually that, uh, I've got in my office here, which uh, I know this is a podcast, so there may not be video <laughs> with it. Um, but uh, describe it. it. What I've got here is a um, a bone of a hadrosaur coming comes from Montana, USA, uh, which is a dinosaur that is or a dinosaur-like creature that is eighty million years old, and um, it was given to me by Simon Stevens, uh, head of the NHS, when I was health secretary, because I once had a conversation with him and I said, you know, the only thing I care about in politics is, is not what people think of me now, but what they think of me in five years time or 10 years time when I've long gone. And is there anything I've done 
that is still there and still making a difference. And um, so he said, well, here's something that's lasted a longer time than, than even you as health secretary. And he gave me that thing. But I think that's a good motto in politics, actually, to think about uh, what is it, if anything, that you're doing that is going to be of such value that it actually outlasts you. And um, I think when you ask that question, you clarify your priorities mm. pretty quickly. That's brilliant. I mean, um, before I forget, I have to ask every everyone in politics, you know, what is the most bizarre moment you've experienced or the thick of it, you know, that you can sort of share in a public forum? <laughs> My goodness me. Well, I've, I've had plenty of uh, thick of it moments, um, but um, the one that I will, uh, I will tell you is one that you, you may have heard of, uh, but it was uh, my first visit to China as foreign secretary. And um, I sat down with a Chinese foreign minister and what always happens at these big diplomatic meetings is that you have all the TV cameras there for the first few minutes just to film you coming in and exchanging a few pleasantries and then they leave and you get down to business. And, um, you know, important meeting Chinese foreign minister. And uh, so I had some notes in front of me, which was my small talk. Um, and uh, I had two bits of small talk. Um, the first was that both of us by coincidence spoke Japanese because he was the former Chinese ambassador to Japan and I learned Japanese when I was younger. And the second bit of small talk was that my wife was Chinese and I muddled them up and I said, well, I'm delighted to be here because my wife is Japanese. And uh, I realized what an incredible faux pas. And I thought, oh, well, the TV cameras have gone now. And I turned around and there was this wall, wall of TV cameras. And the awful thing was it was sort of 10 o'clock in the morning um, and uh, China's, I think, seven hours ahead of the UK. So everyone was asleep. In England and I, I spent the whole day desperately trying to phone my wife to tell her before she found out on the news and when I eventually got through to her she picked up the phone and went konnichiwa which is Japanese for hello so she's got a fantastic <laughs> sense of humor and uh, the whole world uh, uh, wrote it up as the most appalling gaffe I have to say the Chinese uh, thought it was the funniest thing so all credit to that. Well at least you'll visit Gog got to them yes got there, off the, uh, registered yeah, yeah. Yes, so indeed. um just a few quick fire questions um who is your favorite non-conservative mp well um who would i who would i put up there i think i'd probably say hillary ben actually because when i was a brand new mp he was uh, Secretary of State for International Development, and I was on the Select Committee for International Development. And I proposed a change in our policy to do with distributing antiretroviral drugs in Africa. And Hillary listened to that change and he said, I think that's a good idea, we'll do it. I thought that was a big thing to do for an opposition backbencher for a Secretary of State to do that. So mm. uh, that's the kind of bipartisanship I can really respect. Yeah, totally. And what is the best advice you've ever been given that you would like to pass on? Uh, don't stress yourself out about things you can't control. Focus all your energy on things you can control. 
I think in politics, it's so easy to worry about the future and uh, to, to plan for things like becoming prime minister, over which actually you have very, very little control and get stressed out about those things. I think you have to uh, remember to focus your energy on the things which you can really change. Yeah. And finally, um, have you found yourself a new lockdown hobby? And I, I mean, I, I seem to recall that you, are you a keen dancer? I used to be, but I used to be a Lambada dancer before I, uh, before I became an MP and before I was married, actually. I went through a, a phase of being uh, totally uh, obsessed with everything Brazilian. Um, but I haven't been doing so much dancing uh, recently, although it is my ambition to go to Buenos Aires and learn tango with my wife um, at, uh, at some stage. So my lockdown hobby, well, um, I'm I don't really have a new lockdown hobby because my kids are of such a young age that I've been spending every extra uh, moment that I can with them. But if I was going to be pushed, I'd have to say it's been watching lots of uh, really awful box sets, um, not just the French ones, but, uh, but some American trash as well, like uh, Superstore and Modern Family. Um, they've, they've kept me going, actually kept the whole family going as well. They are, and Modern Family is a great show, yeah. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining What Were You Thinking? It's been a, a real pleasure and thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for listening and downloading. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and subscribe and tell all your friends and family. And if you have any questions you want me to put to guests or you have particular guests that you think I should really speak to, do get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. And I would like to just close with a final message from WaterAid. Because this year, the UK is in a unique leadership position it hosted the G7 earlier in the year and it will be hosting the COP26 Climate Summit in November. Our convening power should drive global investment for COVID recovery and for climate resilience. And that is why WaterAid has been working with HRH Prince Charles to launch the Resilient Water Accelerator as part of a Sustainable Markets initiative. This joint public-private initiative seeks to unlock more climate finance so that everyone everywhere can adapt to the effects of climate change. For more information on WASH and WaterAid's work, visit washmatters.wateraid.org. Thank you for listening. Until next time.